What's up guys, this is Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt, and you're listening to the audio version of the 100% Wild Podcast, a collaboration between Wired to Hunt and Drury Outdoors in which I, my co-host Matt Drury, and a special guest answer your very own hunting questions. And today, we've got a question about the different types of food that deer like to eat throughout the year. Specifically, how deer's interest in certain food sources change throughout the hunting season, and how we as hunters can use this to adjust our strategy. Now, Larry Woodward, featured earlier this year in episode number 9, is back with us again today for this one, and I think we cover some super helpful stuff. So, stick around, and thanks for listening. Here's our interview with Matt Drury, myself, and Larry Woodward. Alright, welcome to the 100% Wild Podcast. I'm Mark Kenyon of Wired to Hunt. With me today is Matt Drury of Drury Outdoors, and Matt, we've got a special guest today, right? We do. We got a legend a guy that I've known for probably 12 years or so, but a guy that my uncle and, and uh, dad have known for a long, long time, Larry Woodward. And Larry, give us a little bit, the viewers at home who may not know you, who've been hiding in a box somewhere, give us a little rundown of all the stuff you and Bob have done through the years. Well, we've been on television now doing outdoor stuff for 21 years. Uh, we started out with our show Outdoors in the Heartland which is still on, it's mm-hmm. on Fox Sports and the Outdoor Channel several times a week. And then for the last 15 years, you know, we've got our other shows called Scent Blockers Most Wanted, which is all big game hunting. Outdoors in Heartland, we do a little fishing on yeah. there too, you know. And, uh, man, we've been at this a long time. Yeah. And uh, uh, been very, very fortunate to have been at this for a long time. You know, haven't became a millionaire or nothing, but, <laughs> man, I've enjoyed my life. And, you know, we all got to do something just – like what you guys, you know, we're all from the same neighborhood, yeah, really. Absolutely. And, you know, before doing TV, I did radio for about 10 years in the St. Louis market and, and then guided and uh, did things in magazine stuff, kind of like the same path that your dad and your uncle did, yeah. you know, and just stair-stepped up to where we're at, and it was kind of all by accident, but happy to be doing what we're doing. It's interesting because the guys that, that I feel like paved the, the way in the industry, guys like yourself and Mark and Terry and... Uh, you know, you could go on and on throughout the list, but they started 20 to 30 years ago, almost all of them. And everybody now thinks, hey, how do I get emails all the time? How do I get my own TV show? I'm sure you guys hear it too. Yeah. It's like, man, if I were to do it today, I hear Mark and Terry say it all the time. I don't know if I'd take the same path. It'd be pretty tough, wouldn't it? Yeah, I think uh, right now you have to be a guy that's in another business. <laughs> you almost got to be like the guys in drag racing. It's like you're this rich guy from an oil company, and you and your kids are driving these race cars sponsored by your big oil company, and they lose money in the drag racing, you know. Yeah. But but they're able to afford to play because yeah. of that, and really that's the way it is. It's I mean people think we're all out here getting rich doing outdoor TV, and trust me, we are not. Yeah. And if it wasn't for everybody out there that supports the sponsors Absolutely. that you and I have, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing because we're totally dependent on advertisers' dollars. And that's why it's so important for people out there that if you've got an outdoor personality that you like that are endorsing quality products and stuff, support them by other things. Because without your help, we don't have outdoor television. Yeah. You know, in times like today, you know, it's been a tough couple of years, you know, from a from the box store standpoint. They're not selling as much. We had a tough season yeah. last year. It was warm. Uh, you know, the I think archery's down. It has been the last couple of seasons for all all archery manufacturers. Well, you know, that that windfall kind of carries through with you know, it may start with those big guys see it first, but ultimately it, it'll trickle its way down to all the manufacturers. And uh, you know, it's one of those deals we talk about a lot. 
I hope that this fall we have a normal year as far as weather. You know, cool fall, a good winter, and I hope EHD doesn't pop its head up, which I don't think, you know, we're getting, heck, it's getting the end of August. I don't think it's going to, honestly. We've had some good rain. You know, might have little spots here and there, but I, know, what do you I, think? I, I have heard of a few spots of EHD, people finding deer dead in ponds and wet areas, and it makes you think, oh, no, not again. But in my local area around where, here, where you and I live in east central Missouri, I haven't had anybody yeah. find it. You know, it was so dry in June. It was like July and August, early yeah. September weather in June. All of our crops were burnt up, and yeah. somehow we got blessed by God yeah. with the rains yeah. that we had. And we went from almost crop failure to a crop boom. There's, there's yeah. predicting record harvests of corn and beans. Wow. And somehow that happened. And, and, you know, the deer die because of the midge that breeds in the muck when your yeah. water holes dry up. Yeah. And they got to walk out in that muck, and you see them bugs flying around. That's where that happened. So hopefully we adverted it again this year. Yeah. Because I know it affected you guys this area, mm -hmm. and we have some local areas that were just devastated by it, and I think we're starting to kind of come out of it. But, I agree. But man, that that is just, and there's really nothing that can be done. So, yeah. Hopefully, we've averted that across the country yeah. again this year. Yeah. We'll get back to some normalcy. On if we have a good normal fall and and winter, I think you know if people are seeing deer, seeing does, bucks, you know, using. You know, shooting more things. I think they're going to go buy more stuff. They're going to be more. If, even if their trail cameras are better this year, pictures are better in the summer, it gets them more excited to spend more time to buy more products. I mean, ultimately, as you alluded to, the whole industry, whether people like it or not, I, you get a lot of flack for mm -hmm. it. But whether people like it or not, this industry is um, it, it's made through our sponsors and it's how everything works in our industry and the i think the quality shows like what you guys have and there's there's several good quality shows out there but i think those are the guys you want to gravitate to watching their programs and seeing what they're promoting because we believe in the stuff we're promoting i mean Absolutely. i think that's another fallacy people think oh you're just getting the money it's not like that you know beans you brought that up man you you can contest to this that we have been approached by people before that would like to pay us some money to use their stuff yeah. and it's stuff that we would never use that yeah. we would feel embarrassed to use yeah uh it could be like some of the the infomercials you mm -hmm. see and especially on the fishing side where some guys are like oh check out this lure and and, and they they're what they're playing to is like the women and families they're like oh get that for dad for yeah. christmas you yeah. get that one i'm never using but it so yeah we've actually <laughs> certain ideas from people because it's stuff that we know is yeah. a joke you don't believe and in. we don't want to be involved in that and like you over the past 20 some years of doing outdoor tv we've been blessed being trenched with some of the very best products mm -hmm. and companies in the industry and we try and hold our standards of the stuff that we use is stuff that we would use you know if we were just a consumer yeah. stuff that works it works for me and i know it's being put out there by people that care about the quality of products come out there and that's the thing people don't realize is that without you buying the products that guys like us do mm -hmm. we, we wouldn't be doing this yeah. and and it, a lot of, you you see a lot on the the blogs and things people like oh you seen so and so sold out to the almighty dollar <laughs> yeah, stuff i see that a lot you know guys it's not really like that yeah. because you go to work and get paid for money and your boss is getting paid by somebody to do something and you can't put it that way we can't survive we're not rich enough people are like we're going to film our hunts and we're going to Put it out there. Well, for free. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> nice. 
And we're not selling out to the almighty dollar. Yeah. Uh, we are trying to promote products we believe in the best that we can for yeah. the people that pay us to put a pro quality product out to the viewer yeah. and hope that you let us in each, your homes each and every week and we become part of your families and you feel us like a friend and you understand what we're doing and trying to show you what you could do yeah. in certain circumstances as well. Yeah, yeah. I think it's well put. I mean, Mark, you know, from your perspective, and I know we're digressing, but we'll get to the question of the day here soon. From your perspective, you know, so as someone who was kind of a viewer for a long time and then in the last few years, you've kind of transitioned into being in the industry. Oh, yeah. What, what are your thoughts now that you've seen both sides of it? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a tricky topic to, to kind of work your way through because as a viewer, definitely one of the things that can be, I don't know, I don't know if it's frustrating or occasionally bothersome is the amount of promotion that sometimes gets thrown into TV shows and stuff where you see people that, you know, to your point, occasionally it seems like these people are selling out because they've got a new bow every single year or whatever it might be and they're constantly talking about this or that. So sometimes as a viewer that would frustrate me uh, when you just want to see, you know, give me my entertainment or give me my education or whatever it might be. But then at the same time, to your point, when you're on the other side, there is this need to, you know, in order to provide this value, whether it be a TV show or a podcast or a website, right, we need to find a way to make ends meet. So the trick for me has been how do you walk that line where you provide value to your audience and also to a potential partner or sponsor while keeping both parties feeling like they're getting what they want out of that deal. So for me, just like you guys said, it's been about actually working with companies that I honestly really believe in. You know, if I have to say that I am using a product that I actually don't deep down feel like is a great option, that's going to obviously cause concern for myself and the people watching, I think, or listening are going to know that. So it's it's finding that way to walk the line in an appropriate manner and you know, and try to make sure that I'm always keeping the audience first. I think that's one thing for me. If I'm not keeping my audience's perspective first and foremost, then I'm not going to have an audience in the long run to you know, bring sponsors on board with. So I always try to keep that in mind, and that kind of always helps keep my, my compass pointing in the right direction. I think that's a dead-on way to look at it because uh, authenticity, you can – there's a lot of show. I think I, I read somewhere there's like 300 TV shows out there in the outdoor industry. Yeah something like that. And, you know, there's probably three or four different networks and now online, I don't, you know, I don't know if that even counts all the online shows there are. So, you know, there's a lot of bad shows, honestly. I mean, that, that's the reality of it. And it kind of gives, you know, the guys that are doing it at a certain level, a bad name or have been doing it for a long time, kind of a bad name because we put a lot of effort into this to make sure that there's authenticity, that there's our hunting heritage is, you know, coming out first and foremost, the ethical thing, you're doing the ethical thing, you're doing, I mean, there's a lot that goes yeah. into it, and we're very careful of the message that we portray, and uh, I think that's how, more than anything, I, I think that's how you keep and grow your fan base by being authentic, being real, so. Yeah, yeah and that, that's what you really got to do. You, you've got to do it in a way that people remember you, mm -hmm. and they want to watch you the next time you come yep. on. You know, because there are so many of them out there, you can get caught up in it. And don't mean this is no disrespect to a lot of people, but there's so many of them out there that people think you know everybody that's in this industry, but you can't keep up with them. Yeah. All. No, I have guys that come up to me at ATA and the SHOT Show and stuff. Hey, man, I'm so-and-so from such-and-such show. And I'm like, hey, nice to meet you. And all yeah. that, but I wasn't familiar with yeah. them and didn't try and catch up with them and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, we all try real hard to put out a product that the viewers are going to watch every week. And... Uh, 
And it's not as easy as we make it look. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of wasted hours in the tree stand people, where you don't see people anything. People don't realize. <laughs> you know, obviously we all read blogs that people put on things and stuff, and they think you just go out there and you plant your food plot and sit there, and here they come and you shoot them. And if only they knew all Wait. the time and effort it goes in to have a hunt go successful, and 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 things go bad, and and uh, if only they knew. <laughs> yeah, that's the truth. So yeah, but several full of footage that. <laughs> Out of nothing has happened. Yeah. So, so speaking of of giving our audience value, yep. maybe we should get to that question today. Because, Lair, what we do on every one of these episodes is we listen to a question from one of our listeners and we try to answer it. So, it. if you guys think that's a good idea, let's let's get to that question. Let's do it. Madison Smith from San Antonio, Texas. I uh, just want to say I really enjoyed the podcast. I had a question. It has been a wonderful year as far as rain in Texas. Um, we have food everywhere, and El Nino has been kind to us. The quail populations are booming, uh, and the deer population will have one of the best resource years in recent history. Anyway, it kind of presents a classy problem. On a property that I've hunt, I've planted some food plots, but we've also got a lot of great natural browse, and we're also feeding some supplemental feed with corn, etc., cetera, uh, as we tend to do in Texas. I was wondering if you could walk through the season and illustrate at each point in the season what type of food or browse uh, would deer be preferring. For example, in September, pre-rut, should I be hunting over grains or are food plots still going to be a main attractant? Thank you so much for the time and effort y'all put into the podcast and look forward to hearing more from you. So what do you think, Larry? Well, that's an interesting question. First thing he says, he's in Texas. I love Texas. Mm -hmm. You know, God Over the years Texas. when I went to Texas and you look at the terrain there and the food and stuff and you're thinking, how in the heck does anything live here? You know, in the bad years, deer and turkey are, are thick down there. I'm like, what? With what we have in the Midwest, why can't we have population numbers and stuff like that? Yeah. Texas is just an awesome place. It has a long season. Mm -hmm. And this guy, I wish he would have said what part of Texas he's in because Texas is such a huge place. Makes From up difference. in the northeast corner of Texas to the southwest corner or way over there in the, the panhandle, the, Texas is like several different countries combined. Yeah. But if, if, if Texas is open in September, there's one thing you can do in Texas, Matt, that, my, that comes to me right off the bat. He says about should I be hunting them on grains or whatever. I think he means like feeders or mm -hmm. something like that. Well, when you get in that kind of place and you can legally hunt over supplemental feed, hunt over. Mm -hmm. And But then again, if your guy's got food plots, sounds like he's got able to do several things on the property he's hunting, get your cameras out. These are the things that can give you that information yeah. that we never used to have. You'd just be looking at tracks in the mud and rubs and scrapes and, uh, you know, distance observations and things. But, you know, early in the year, even if you're feeding deer feed, corn pellets, whatever, they're not going to spend their entire day standing there eating that food. They yeah. like that at a certain time of day, a couple times, three times a day. But deer are browsers. Mm -hmm. They have to have brush and other things in their diet to digest everything else. And so early in the season, they're going to be eating still the, the tender green plants that have grown because of the plethora of rain that they've got here and been in so many years of drought. But in Texas... You've got to feed your deer down there. Mm -hmm. If you're if you're hunting, in my opinion, if you're hunting on a on a property that you're not giving them supplemental feeding, your neighbor's going to have all the deer. Yeah. You everybody in Texas feeds because it's legal, and if you don't, 
your deer will be someplace where they can. And yeah, they might stray through there, but that has to be a big part of anybody's hunting strategy in the state of Texas, in my opinion. Yeah, that's a whole different debate, I think. You know, when it, like you said, it's legal, do it. It's, you know, hey, they say you can, why not try it? And in that, that instance, those kind of states, you, you almost have to just to have a chance. Yeah. Hey, and I'll say this, anybody that, that tries to tell you that in states where it is legal to hunt over grain or feeders or anything like that and say they don't, they're lying to you. Because you wouldn't have any success in Texas if you didn't. Yeah. Because the biggest of ranches down there, they're all doing it. It's legal. It's a part of their thing. And and in my opinion, anything that's legal, there's no there, there's yeah. not a problem with that. And so that becomes a big part of that. But they'll have, uh, I've been to a place down there, big food plots down there, and the deer pour out to them. Really? And they're not going to spend all their time on yeah. those feeders. And just because you're feeding them, doesn't mean the biggest, best deer in that place are going to come to that in daylight hours. In that type of terrain, what kind of food plots work? What kind of, what are you planning exactly? Well, down there, they got to be really selective with what they plant because of the soil types and the lack of water. Yeah. And one thing that I know that works down there is forage, uh, like forage oats and things like that. Uh, there's a lot of people, you know, you and I represent different companies mm -hmm. that both make great stuff. Yeah. But any of the type forage oats, wheat type things mixed with brassicas, because they're very drought tolerant, particularly the brassicas. Brassicas from Canada to Mexico, I don't think I, in places I plant food plots, could go without a brassica of some kind. They are so important. And if you just get a little bit of water on a brassicas and you come in and you got your ground right, fertilize them, plant them. I come in with straight nitrogen just a little bit when I plant brassicas and get them in the ground, get them and start it. And you get any decent rain after you've planted them, them things are almost fail-proof. Yeah. You know, as long as they don't come up and germinate and have 110 degrees for a couple of weeks, mm -hmm. you can kill them off. But, man, if they just come up and get a little rain and then you get some dews, then them brassicas will, will go. <laughs> and they're that, that definitely do great in Texas in those poor soils and lack of water in places. And uh, those, were, if it was me in Texas, I'd be planting a lot of brassicas and cereal grain type products. Corn and beans, depending on what part of Texas you're in, is pretty hard to do yeah. in places without irrigation. Yeah, yeah. So, so Larry, what if we were to transition this question a little bit to approach this from a maybe midwestern point of view? We've got lots of listeners and viewers from the Midwest. What if this was? What if this was happening there? What, how would you walk through a season in the Midwest and rate your food sources? I mean, when I think about my year during a hunting season here in Michigan or Ohio or Iowa, there's certain types of food I might key in on in early October versus late December. Do you have any type of you know ranking within your head of what's best during that season in well, that part of the country? You know, Missouri opens now in the last several years, September 15th. I think Illinois and Iowa is October 1st yeah. still. And... There's a big difference between September 15th and October 1st. Yeah. You yeah. might get lucky and still catch them a little batched up there September 15th, right? You know? Yes, and not as much October 1st. Yeah. You know the deer around here usually by the, on my cameras, by the third day of September usually have all shed. Yeah. I mean, it's just like clockwork. By yeah. the third of September, man, they're shed. And as soon as they do that, they're... they're their minds change. Yeah. They go from being buddies and stuff, and they just start going other places. And that's the trap a lot of people get drawn into is yeah. they've been watching these deer all the way up to then. And then they might be together a little bit then, and they'll be hitting clovers and maybe your newly planted uh, oats and mm -hmm. wheat and stuff like that at that time. 
and then all of a sudden they disappear <laughs> and they're not seeing them in the daytime yeah. and and since he brought up midwest on most years there's one thing that's going to trump everything at that time and they're falling out of the trees yeah and it's acorns yeah, yeah mass crop could really hurt you during that time of year right there's no doubt about it just like uh deer in texas mm -hmm. if somebody's feeding them corn they're going to be utilizing it somehow and anywhere you've got plethora of acorns that trumps everything. They've been waiting since they ate them all up this past winter for that to happen, yeah. and that will shut things off just like that, that you better have a wood strategy if you can get in there and hunt them and not mess them up yeah. at that time. So once again, I'm going to utilize my cuttyback camera so hard to this period and, <laughs> and have them set up in a place that I can get it easy in, easy yeah. out. And to just get pictures of deer, I try, and I don't want to get off, topic here but it's so important that you can get in and check your cameras to where it looks like it's a normal human movement through yeah. an area yeah that you're not like walking way up in the woods and stuff we're like man all of a sudden somebody's walking around but if you've got it somewhere on your field edges where yeah. you're always in and out uh, on a tractor or four-wheeler during the day that's normal human activity I call it you can get away with a lot like yeah. that because they're expecting people to do those type of things mm -hmm. but you know if, to get back to the topic, at that early season, I'm going to really be watching my clovers hard because they've been eating those all summer and like them. And another key thing is, which I, I planted soybeans on the 15th of July, specifically to have green soybeans on October 1st. Mm -hmm. And they like them when they're green. And as soon as they turn brown, they turn off of them until it gets cold. Yeah. So when they turn, when they turn yellow, what do you switch to? back to green food source what green food source do you switch well, to then i'm going to switch back to uh i like planting a mixture of brassicas with oats mm -hmm. and they'll eat the brassicas early they'll hit those but they really like those newly sprouting oats mm -hmm. a lot and another thing i've done before is uh if you got harvested soybeans man those soybeans that have fallen through the screen on the combine yeah. that re-germinate before they get frosted they love those. you yeah. got to keep an eye if you've had early soybean harvest. And newly, you know, the beans that have come back that have just fallen through the, the, the combine, that can be a big calling card too. But you got to be observant because yeah. not all deer are the same. Yeah. Not all the deer, in my opinion, your deer herd are going to do the exact same mm -hmm. thing. And maybe the deer that you're particularly after aren't doing anything that the other deer are doing. And as you're going to find, especially the mature bucks, Right there at the first of October, they're going to be become hard to find for a little bit. Yeah. Well, and until usually until the farmers take out the corn, take Absolutely. out the beans, it's really tough because Absolutely. they're spread out all over the country they're in, in the Midwest. Too. Yeah, they're, 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 in, they're, it. they're in it too. Yeah, that's their cover. Yeah. Speaking speaking of corn, something that I've heard uh, your dad talk about, Matt and Mark, both of them, I've heard this idea that let's say it's November, late October. I've heard them say that when it's warm out, they focus on the green. When it's cold out, they, they focus on the grain. Yes. Is that something you've seen too, Larry? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I have to say that I'm, I don't own a bunch of big land and stuff. And so I lease some and borrow some and I'm able to plant food plots and things and manage some places, not a lot of big properties. But there's no doubts about it that if you have cereal grains late in the season that are still in the field, mm -hmm. uh, it's going to pay off for you. Yeah. If you can make that happen. 
bad thing about it is if you're in, a, in an area with high deer concentration, it's hard to grow corn and soybeans <laughs> in small plots. Yeah. Uh, just like yesterday, I just got back from Canada bear hunting. I went over and checked some more stuff in Illinois that I planned those soybeans. And uh, some of those are doing good, but they're all nipped off, yeah. like this tall. And so the deer like are already cattle, cattle grazing. <laughs> the deer are already utilizing them, and uh, so I might have beans, I might not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, the grains like that, if you can leave them until November, particularly they're going to shine for you in late season. Yeah. If you haven't yeah. tagged out, it's going to make your late season hunting so much better because the old adage, he who has the food has the deer, mm. hear a lot of people coin that phrase. It is a fact. Yeah. It is a fact. Yeah, and, and so many people that like hunt farms that, hey, I hunt so-and-so's farms. Yeah. And I have farmers I work with. They are so hard to get to leave oh, any my. grain crop. I was just <laughs> saying that. I will pay you for two acres uh-huh. of their market price, whatever you're averaging yeah. per I just, oh, I can't just leave that there. I'm like, you can have it when I'm done with it. You yeah. know, just can't. A lot of them, unless they're a hardcore deer hunter, cannot leave. And they're like, just leaving a couple rows around outside. Oh, man, that just kills them. It's funny you say that on our lease last year, we had paid the farmer to, and it's nothing against, you know, great guy. Great guy. But we paid him to leave an acre of beans here, an acre of corn here, an acre of beans up here. And we, he cut it on his own. And we weren't there the day he did it. And I got up there, and I was I, I was talking to Aaron Bennett, my camera guy, and I was like, T, what does this look like to you? Because to me, it looks like it's a quarter of an acre. <laughs> in the late season, oh. once it got there, the deer had just annihilated it so quickly. I mean, it never it never became a factor like we had hoped it was. We paid for uh, you know, but it was more like a quarter acre. And that's to your point, and Dad has always told me that. A farmer, just it kills them to leave it in the ground it just kills him oh yeah and so i guess this year you better be find out the oh. day that he's coming <laughs> yeah. out there with those things that they land airplanes with. yeah we talked we talked about it this year we're going to flag it for him caution and, tape uh, it off me- measure it because it's, <laughs> it's we got standing corn you know he's got corn right in front of one of our big box blinds it's going to be key to yeah, the late season like yeah exactly right mm-hmm. and, I'm going to bring him, I think. I'll take you, Larry, next time we have him cutting. Well, all right. You know, it's key to your – I mean, I think this goes back to this guy's point in, in the in the uh, call. You know, that's a strategy for your late season. I mean, there's certain things, winter bulbs, sugar beets, stuff like that, that I think, you know, work good in the late season. But n- almost nothing's as good as standing corn or standing beans at that time. Hey, it's real cold. Here's the thing. You and I both promote – to the most outstanding food plot companies in the industry, yep. the leaders, mm-hmm. and love their products. I plant lots of them. You'll see me hunting over them most weeks. Yeah. But in being honest to our viewers, we're not trying to lie to nobody. Hey, corn and beans in use with those other type yeah. products too. Yeah. You want to have, if you're a person that's got land that you can control or contribute something to for your late season hunting, yeah. it's going to pay off for you. Now, not everybody can have it. There's a lot of guys hunting public land and just any place they can go and things like that, and it's a little bit harder for them to do. Yeah. And uh, But if you can utilize and get some cereal grains, whatever part of the country you're in, like around here it's corn and beans, somewhere else it might be wheat or milo mm-hmm. or canola up north or yeah. something. Man, if you can have that for the late season, it's going to really enhance your late season opportunities. And why is that with the whitetail? What's going on with them? It's just they're trying to replenish or get their fat 
content yes. built up before the harsh Car winters. Carbohydrates. Carbohydrates. It's a total thing that they know they need to eat certain foods. If they're out of mast, they prefer mast over anything. But if they're out of mast, that's just what's going to bring them to them. If you don't have corn and beans and you've got turnips and brassicas and that type of stuff, or, or even wheat, that's where they're coming. Yeah. And they're going to utilize that too. But if somebody, if your neighbor has standing corn and beans and it gets zero and there's snow, guess what? <laughs> you're not finding many tracks on your place. And yeah. that's, just, that's just the way it is. Yeah. So if you're in an area where all the other people in your community are managing deer and leaving to feed them, you better get on, on the ball yeah. because once it gets past that time where they need that kind of food, they'll travel miles to get to it. It will suck. It just sucks them in. They'll, they'll <laughs> travel miles to get to it. And they don't. once they get on it, they don't move. I mean, they, they, it's a slow graze, and they'll just eat for hours. And here's the thing about it. If you're a, a deer manager, when you have those type of foods on your property, and deer is a short-lived creature, but those, those fawns in that year, they follow their mother down there to that place. Mm -hmm. And they understand after that year that this was a place that last year I could get food. Yeah. So it gets entrenched into their mind. Survival. And they know that they can go to that place. So yeah. uh, if you're a person that's not managing your ground to, you know, compete with that, you're, you're going to be out of luck. I want to bring. You're teaching deer, the next generations of deer, that, hey, I have the food here for you. Come on down. Yeah. Yeah. I want to bring one other topic up, which we haven't touched on at all, which can help that guy or girl who maybe doesn't have the type of land where you can plant food plots and have all this type of stuff. And that's soft mass, because soft mass, like in the form of a persimmon tree or an apple tree or something like that, those are short-lived food opportunities where it drops for a handful of days and then the local deer are, are hammering it. And because of that, to that point, those deer flock to that area because it's very different than anything else available because deer love diversity. So if you're on public land or you have a property where you don't have a lot of crop fields, if you can figure out where those mass trees are and start to learn year after year when that drop is, that's a huge opportunity to take advantage of. But you really need to know when that drop is and how long it's going to last. It's a great point. Yeah, the persimmons are one of those things. Like if you're somewhere, the very first oaks aren't necessarily white oaks all the time. But they're acorns, mm -hmm. so get on them. So then you've got those and your little black oaks and your little ones are falling. As soon as them big whites start falling, they're going to those. Mm -hmm. So if you know your terrain and all and the ridges where you got those, and that'll vary from year to year. You know, one a north face might be loaded with acorns one year and the south side wouldn't because of night and morning time frost when they're budding and things like that. But you got to know your area and where this mass is falling, and can you get in and out mm -hmm. without screwing everything up yeah. for later? But on that soft mass, let me get back to that. Persimmons they love, and so is the coons and coyotes and everything else. <laughs> and you find them a lot of times up on hills where you got little brushy places. Mm -hmm. And if you've got to look at a map and you find a place that looks like it's tall grass and stuff, very good chance going to be some persimmon trees, and they're usually going to start falling late September, first October, and they're only going to last for a couple of weeks. You know, the first frost that comes or a big windstorm, they're all on the ground and they're gone like that. But if you know where those are, year after year, if you do have a persimmon crop, they will come and hit them things. That, that's for sure. And it's a short-lived opportunity, like you said. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, really understanding this whole topic of timing to, to Burleson's <laughs> question. It really comes down to knowing the right time to be at the right place. And when it comes to a food source, knowing when that food is, you know, most palatable to deer 
and then knowing when it's available to deer. And I think we've kind of covered both of those, whether it be the food plots or egg crops or, you know, mass, soft, hard, all of that. I think as hunters, if we constantly try to pay attention to those details, when's it most palatable and when's it going to be available, that can really help make your hunting season, your plan for your hunting season, a lot simpler. If you just pay attention to those things, that will guide you to where to hunt. You know, this is a, a shameless plug here, but that's, I mean, when we came up with Idea 13, Mark and Dad sat down. I was just getting ready to compliment you on that concept <laughs> that, that's of that. That's the concept yes. of it. It's like, all right, here's, I mean, I just I just answered um, somebody on our Facebook page. We, we put up a promo for this week's episode of 13, and the guy's just hammering us. He's from Bama. He, he just kept saying Bama. You know, it's one of those guys mm-hmm. that, oh, bring that, you know, technical BS down to Bama and see if it works. And we've said from the get-go, this isn't, you know, the end-all be-all. This is just a guide of two guys, Mark and Terry, that have sat in the woods for four months straight for 30 years in a row. And this is what they've noticed, Mm -hmm. you know? And so we've tried to break it down in the best way we could. And we came up with 13 phases. Does that mean it's going to be that way exactly every year? No, it's a sliding scale depending on where you're at, but these are, it's a general guide and it gives you some tips and tactics on how you could go about and try something new during that period. And it has, a lot to do with food i mean that's what a lot of it's based off well here's the thing the deer's whole life most of his most of his year really is based on food and cover yeah and those food sources are going to change from january 1st to december 31st the next year uh weekly sometimes days change things temperature changes things and then there's that one time a year we got a couple of weeks where he's thinking about the girls and that changes things yeah. for his stomach particularly. Yeah. And then that's a total readjustment. We're not talking about the rut right now, but you know, most of the deer's life revolves around food and at different times they like different things. And that's to the guy's question here. He's going to have to adjust. Anybody that's successful year after year and through the seasons, you have to adjust. Just like a fisherman that fishes for bass or a tournament fisherman, one day you can catch them this way and then they can't. And you see them, you know, they go adjust their tactics and move from shallow to deep because barometric pressure moves the fish. Same thing with the deer. Yeah. You, you've got to be where you can change on the fly mm-hmm. to make things happen. You know, a lot of people, they have a little piece of ground. I mean, right here in Missouri, there's very big acreage areas. There's people that have 50 acres, got 10 family members yeah. every day of gun season. Yeah. And they sit them same stands every year stuff. Yeah. And it works for some of them because the sheer numbers of people that come to the woods that day, deer moving, they go over here, smell this guy, they go over here, can't move. Can't get away. And a lot of them like, they think it's rutting activities. This is our truck leaving this guy and getting to that guy. And that's a great time to be there for the rifle season yeah. because you got forced movement yeah. because of hunters. And that's all over Missouri. The deer's just scared. But if you're in a place that's not like that and you, do, and you have the luxury of not having them being bumped by other people, then it goes back to where it's, this is what makes hunting great. It's mm-hmm. like a chess game. It is. You're using it all right here, yeah. and you're trying to do your diligence of figuring out, should I be here today? If I hunt here right now, will I screw this up for yeah. the next couple of weeks and things? And I have to say, not all you guys after watching, this is the things we'll get. Well, I can only hunt this 10-acre piece, and, and I only got one place I can hunt, and he wants to go sit there every day. Well, man, by all means, go there. And yeah. I wish you luck. Yeah. And, uh, man, if you could find you another place to go, look yeah. at some, there's some really, people don't realize that there's some really, for, for deer hunting, maybe you're not going to go kill a Boone and Crockett. But like in the state of Missouri, there's a lot of public land opportunities. And that some if you want to work harder than others, if you get back in there just a little harder than others, 
there's some opportunities to be had there if you're somebody that doesn't have private land that you can own, lease, yeah. or get permission to hunt. You, if you're a good hunter, you can make some things happen yeah. by working harder than other people, some putting in some effort. But if you're just going to sit in your truck or just you know walk a little off the road and sit there, mm -hmm. your opportunities could be limited. But uh, the more work you put into something, the more you can get out yeah. of it. Some of the best hunters in the world are public land hunters. Absolutely, you know? absolutely, and. I think there's a perception out there that there is a hunter behind every tree on public land, and and so everybody thinks that, so they try to avoid it. And, yeah. and I know guys that do nothing but hunt public land, and, and they figure out places to when the people that hunt the road and the, the closest to the road push the deer to, well, they've been back in there three hours before daylight, and they're waiting for them. Yeah. Every year, that annual push, <clears throat> here they come. So yep. uh, a guy that doesn't have much place to, to hunt, look at that because there are some opportunities in a lot of different states and if you just work hard at it you can make it happen absolutely i'm heading off in one week for my own public land whitetail hunt so uh i'm gonna try to put that into practice and put the work in <laughs> a week from today i'm headed off to do some public land elk hunting so nice and uh you got some it, miles to put on those feet don't good. you <laughs> oh man we do about at least 10 miles or or more a day yeah and at every end of every day, you're like, man, why am I doing this? Uh -huh. But the next morning, you hear that bugle, and you forget all that. That you wake up the next day, I usually spend three weeks every year chasing them when they're bugling and stuff. And there's no whitetails, really, for me to be hunting at that time. Yeah. So, yeah, I just love it. I just That's I just awesome. love the milk bugling. Awesome. Can't beat those bugles echoing across the valley when you're getting up in the morning. That'll, that'll get you out of the sleeping bag, that's for sure. Or you can see them and see the fire blow out their nose and their mouth, and you can feel it down the back. I'm goosebumps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I'm excited, too. <laughs> I guess on that note, we should probably shut this one down, and, and then, Larry, we can talk elk after this. <laughs> um, That's a whole other podcast. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, but but that said, really quickly. I'm Larry, and I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> It's, it's easy to get that way if you try it once, that's for sure. Yeah. But real quick before we shut it down, if you'd like your question answered on one of our future episodes, we would love for you to submit a question. Head over to wiredtohunt.com slash 100% wild, and you'll see the instructions for exactly how to do that. We'd love to take a listen to it and, and feature you on one of these future episodes, especially during the hunting season. If you get those questions in now, we might be able to tackle them before you actually get out on some of these different hunts. So do that. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or over at wiredhunt.com. And, of course, you can get your video version there over at the Jury Outdoors YouTube channel. And uh, like I mentioned, that public land whitetail hunt coming up, I'll be sharing lots of interesting things on our own Wired Hunt podcast and all the different things on Wired Hunt. So check that out. And Matt, yeah, you? Yeah, check out everything we're doing. Of course, we're airing on the Outdoor Channel and the Pursuit Network right now. You can catch us just about any time during the week. And, uh, of course, always catch us on juryoutdoors.com, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. This fall, we're going to have so much stuff we're doing from a social media standpoint. We're going to be going live to you from the field, trying to give you phase breakdowns brought to you by Iconics. We're going to be doing a lot of cool stuff. So uh, please, by all means, come over, hit like, follow us, join us, and uh, we look forward to uh, um, seeing what we can do this fall with our viewers. So. Larry, thank you very much for having uh, having us or coming over and being with us. Hey, I yeah, thank you. The invite, man. Anytime I can talk hunting with people, I just love it. Anything you want to plug before we go? 
Well, the same thing, guys. For any of you guys that don't know me, we do uh, Outdoors in the Heartland and Scent Blockers Most Wanted on the Outdoor Channel. And also, there's hardly anybody out there like me that is a, what's the word I'm looking for here? i got to be very po- politically correct. Uh, techno wannabe. Not very <laughs> Find us on all those different uh, social media avenues as well, and we'll try and entertain you there as well. Like some looks and likes, and uh, check out what we do. I know a guy just like this. His name is Terry Drury. We call him Square Terry. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. Well, thanks, everyone, for joining us. This has been a blast. We'll catch you next time. Peace.